Hi everyone and welcome to the Perma Podcast. I am James Prescott, the host. Welcome to the show. It's really great to be with you all. And um, I'm delighted to welcome, you, welcome a new guest to the show today um, and a therapist um, and an author and a few other things. Uh, welcome to the show, Shelley, Shelley DeYoung. Hello, James. Thanks for having me on here. Yeah, it's really great to have you on. Um, yeah, wanting to have you on for a while. It's uh, It's exciting to finally talk to you. No, thank you. And actually, I'm I'm the one that definitely sought you out because I really like the work that you're doing. And I appreciate you looking at my website and feeling like I would be a, a good fit for your show. Yes, that's right. I mean, I, I'd kind of seen you around and I, I thought you might be interesting, but I wasn't, uh, I hadn't got around to asking yet because, um, and then you just preempted, preempted me. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's, um, it's really great to have you here. Um, and you, you, know, you deal with a lot of the things that we talk about a lot on the show, so it's uh, it's really great to have you here. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a bit about tell us a bit of your your story uh, and and what you do. Yes, definitely. Well, for for all your listeners, I am a mental health and drug and alcohol counselor, and I live in northwestern Wisconsin in the United States. And what I was telling you, James, when we were kind of doing the soundtrack was that I have a strong drive to um, be in your country because my granny was a war bride and came over from Bolton. And, and so my great uncle lives in Bolton and all of my second and third cousins live in Bolton. And I have a friend in um, Croydon, um, you know, south of, of London. And so the UK, and I studied abroad in Scotland. So the UK is is really special to me. Um, and so I was, you know, excited to obviously be on here. Um, you know, I love your accent. So anyhow, again, for, for having me. Um, as far as my story goes, you know, everybody that, that gets on these podcasts, they certainly can go back as far as they want to, or they can start present time. And I will just say that for me, what really was transformational in my life or where, where things took a, a, a drastic turn was I had my second child and it was a boy and my children are about 15 months apart. And after I had my son, I was let go of my job about a month later. And that was devastating to me. Um, for folks listening, they might be like, wait, didn't she have family, you know, medical leave act? I actually had really bad um, labor and deliveries um, with both of my children. So I was on bed rest with both of them for a very long time. And um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, when I gave birth to my son, I was almost at the end of the the Family Medical Leave Act. And so a month later, I, I lost my job and then I developed postpartum depression pretty significantly because I never did think that it was something I wanted to do was be a stay-at-home mom. And with that comes like I'm getting anxious just even talking about it because with it comes a lot of guilt about you know, this honor of being able to think that you can be a mother and that you should, you know, be able to naturally give birth to children and not everybody can. And then I ended up having my son and lost my job. And I just thought that that was always my purpose was to work and to help people as a counselor. And, um, and I think I was saying I was a mental health counselor. I'm also a drug and alcohol counselor as well. And at that point I had been working for, for several years and I didn't, I didn't want to not work. I didn't want to be at home. And there was a lot of guilt that, that came from that and a lot of depression. And as time went on, 
you know, we always had wine in the house and beer. And as time went on, James, it was like one glass of wine at night turned into a couple to three glasses. Mm -hmm. And before I knew it, I was drinking, you know, probably not daily, but I would say at the time, if it wasn't daily on the days that I was drinking, I was binge drinking almost to intoxication. And you know, those of your listeners that are familiar with Wisconsin, it's kind of a joke that we are we are very heavy drinkers here. The University of Wisconsin is known for, you know, being very heavy in their drinking as well. Um, so I just would say to myself, I'm just a Wisconsinite drinker. It's just, you know, this is what we do. We binge drink, you know, we still, you know, we still get up, we still do the things that we're supposed to do. But what happened was the shame and the guilt just really, really just became thick for me. And I started to hide it. And keep in mind, my husband is somebody who is, he doesn't drink a lot. And so he started to notice that things were were different. And I should add that I also come from a family. Well, it, it, I will add because it's, it's key to my, um, key to my story is that I come from a family of, of addicts and alcoholics and we are pretty much middle class, very functional, but nonetheless, the, you know, the disease is there. And I'm sure that you've mm. heard that from people that, you know, when there's addiction in family where, you know, we can be genetically predisposed. I'm sure you've had listeners on here that have described that as well. Yeah. And, and I, I, I have experience of um, alcohol addiction in my own family. Uh, my mother, my mother was an alcoholic um, and um, kind of, Fell into it um, because she was ill, and I've told I told the story on the show. People, listeners will know the story. Um, she had an asthma attack and got brain damage, and her short term memory was damaged, and she couldn't work. Everything else was fine; she could do everything else, but that was her short term memory was screwed up, and so she became depressed because she was quite an independent woman uh, and wanted a career and everything like that, but now couldn't do that, and obviously fell into depression and and fell into. Um, Alcohol addiction. So I'm, yeah, I've, I've I've seen what that can be like. Yeah. Um, your well, and your mother sounds like a woman after my own heart in a very similar story. And um, you know, and so just I guess backing up too is I my mother um was an alcoholic and and so as a little girl it was, you know, and throughout my throughout my whole childhood and adult years, I, my mother and I always had a disengaged and tumultuous relationship, but it wasn't, it was still a relationship in which I wanted love. I wanted connection with her, but I really struggled with her, her addiction. And so I would disengage and I would get really angry and I would play all of those emotions. And so for me, it was this idea that I was never going to turn out like my mother, right? Like I was never going to have a problem with alcohol. And so then fast forward to be to have this postpartum, which it was more anxiety than it was depression, because I really have never been somebody that's had a true sense of, of depression as much as I would say that it's anxiety. And then to find myself not being able to not drink was very, very problematic. And so we kept it a secret, or I did. And I think because my husband was definitely embarrassed and we would be hopeful that something, you know, would be different from it. But, um, so here I am, probably, 
oh, I don't even know. I think I might have been 34 at the time. And and then I did quit at 39 and I'm 45 now. So I'm celebrating six years on December 20th. But you know, before I got to that point, it was, like I said, a secret. I hid it um, you know, from from work. I hid it from from society. I hid it from friends. I hid it from family. Mm-hmm. It was just something that I did in my home. And it got to the point at the end where I ended up having um, a foot surgery, actually two of them, and I was prescribed pain pills and I became addicted to the pain pills. And that was when things just got really bad. And and again, all of it's still a secret, but enough so that my life had really gotten very dark. I mean, just very, very dark and very so much shame and so much fear about who I was, who I thought I was becoming. And my husband really gave me an ultimatum and it was like, this needs to change or I'm leaving and taking the kids. And like I said, James, I just became my mother and that is not at all what I thought I wanted to be or thought Mm -hmm. I could be. Um, And I'm, I'm familiar and cognizant of, you know, like again, the genetic predisposition that I had from being, you know, a, a child of an alcoholic um, mother and, and family members. So I wasn't shocked where I was at. It was just emotionally and mentally just so disturbing to where I thought I'd ever be in my life. And so I quit everything. I, I called into my job and I quit. I didn't give them any any reason because, again, it wasn't anything they were aware of. So I quit my job and I quit my entire life and I went to detox and stayed there for four days. And then I came home for about three days and celebrated Christmas with my children because they were young. And then I went off to a treatment program for 30 days. And while I was there, that is where I I, I knew that I had to make some really significant changes. Mm. Yeah, that's why you knew you had to make. So I thought I'd pause in case you want to add um, anything or ask anything. You know, that, 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 that's what happens when you get to that point, isn't it? Um, you, you, yeah, you can, you get to a certain point where I've got to make changes and I've got to do something and take drastic action, and and that's kind of what you what you did, right? Mm-hmm, definitely. Mm-hmm. You know, and one of the well, so let me just. I know that when you and I talked about me being on here, some of the things that we wanted to talk about were were my my history with with alcohol, my my job, and what I do for a living. Um, and so I will say that when I got to treatment, for me, James, it wasn't a concern that I was not going to be able to stay sober and clean. I trusted that. I don't know where that trust came from, but I trusted that. What I was more afraid of is what I had seen in most of my career, which was um, what we would call dry drunks. And these are people Mm -hmm. that get sober or they get clean um, more so because there's legal consequences, because they're mandated to do it, because there's all these ultimatums and, and family members are saying that, you know, like, if you don't do this, I'm going to leave or they're going to, you know, lose, lose jobs or whatnot. So they go to treatment and they are able to basically kind of like white knuckle their sobriety, um, but do it in a way where they're attending m- multiple meetings or whatever it is that they're doing, but they never they never really do the hard work, what I call the soul work, where they get a mm-hmm. to themselves. Um, 
And so, so that is something that I, you know, I just really feel strongly about. Um, am I on here now, James? Yeah, you are. Yeah. <laughs> just want to check in. Um, so the soul work that, that I feel is so important is this idea that when we get either clean and sober or we have, you know, there's porn addiction or there is eating disorders, you know, whatever it is that a person is living with, whatever kind of darkness they're experiencing that is in an obsessive compulsive way, um, there, I think there's a significant amount of, of, of work you have to do within yourself. And I call that, you know, soul work. And so for me, James, I was more, it was more important that I do that work than it was that I focus on going to AA meetings or NA meetings. You know, a lot of that work, you remember, I'm a therapist going to a treatment center. So a lot of the work was work that that I'm teaching clients or I'm doing in groups or that I was familiar with um, or I created groups around the information that was available. And so for me, it was how do I how do I align with my my sense of spirituality, my sense of faith? And that was where I really just I really just started talking to God and I started, you know, kind of manifesting and attracting you know, energy that was going to help me want to to understand why I felt the need to to drink in times of grief, in times of despair, in times of anxiety. And that was where a whole new world of my commitment to my faith and my commitment to working with others and and understanding their relationship with substances or, things that are deeply, um, you know, traumatic or troubling to them, that was where things opened up for me. Um, have you had other people that have talked about kind of this existential experience too? Well, yeah. I mean, I've talked to a few people who've, who shared their stories of, of transformation. Yeah. Um, overcoming different sorts of obstacles, you know, uh, we talk about it on the show a lot. Um, and I talk about my story a lot, you know, cause I had to, you know, I was the child of a, of a uh, with an alcoholic parent, and my parents fought a lot when I was a teenager because of that, and I got caught in the middle of that, mm-hmm. uh, which was obviously traumatizing for me. Uh, and then my mother died twenty years ago, um, or nearly twenty-one years ago, and uh, uh, yeah, and obviously, so I had I had my own trauma kind of from that, and. You know, I've had kind of coping coping mechanisms, I suppose, is, I don't like to use that term too much, but um, overeating, you know, kind of, um, I suppose you could call it an addiction to food or junk food or sugary food, um, you know, to, as a kind of way of de- processing my, my pain and my trauma. And maybe that was partly that kind of addictive gene maybe was passed down. Yeah, you're, you're right. Um, uh, yeah, so... I mean, there's, there's evidence, isn't there, that we carry over, we can carry over the trauma of um, our ancestors, like in our bodies. Uh, and certainly I, I, myself, and I think my sister as well, in a way, um, have carried that um, from our family and not just from our parents, but from from before that as well. Because my, my, my dad lost, lost, his, lost his dad when he was 12 years old and my mother's, 
dad uh, was in an institution, mental health institution, for quite a long time um, mm-hmm. while she was a child. So there's a lot of that that's right. carried down. And so what you're talking about um, does make a lot of sense right now. Um, and yes, um, yeah, for me, it's it's really really important when we um, when we when we go through that, that we don't just try and avoid it or don't just try and deal with, um, you know, the kind of surface stuff, but we actually go and process what's underneath it and what's really going on deep inside of us. Uh, and it sounds like that's what you were doing. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that you said that just kind of sparked my thoughts um, right now for all of your listeners, and this is something I did. So, you know, even backing up to when I was, when I graduated high school and, and went into, you know, was entering into college, I just felt very flawed and I, and I wasn't sure what was wrong with me. I didn't understand why I had so many physical things that would happen, you know, heartburn and reflux and, and, um, you know, really severe, painful menstrual cycles, things that, that, you know, at, back in my time, it was just, you know, just get over it or, or eat a banana or, you know, take some ibuprofen or things like that, that, you know, there wasn't a lot of, um, empathy for physical ailments, nor was there the same level of knowledge to the mind, body, soul connection. And this idea that, that, you know, we can repress so many emotions that then can, you know, manifest physical symptoms. And so, so I just felt really untethered and really, really lost. And I don't remember, I still try to think about who was the one that told me about this book, but I ended up buying the book, Healing the Shame That Binds You by um, John Bradshaw. He is, he's, you know, currently deceased at this point, but he was really a pioneer back in, at least in America, in the, the, the realm of addiction and family systems and really working through um, the inner child work and did a lot of work on PBS in America, um, I believe on Sunday nights where he would do something for an hour and talk about the, the dynamics of that. And so it was in his book that I learned about healthy shame and toxic shame and how we can, how that, like you said, you know, um, you know, family ancestral trauma, it, there's ancestral shame that gets passed on down. And my, my mother's family is similar in, in conjunction to your family. My, my dad's father was an alcoholic as well. Um, but my mom's parents both died of, of alcoholism, you know, or complications related, whether it was heart disease or things like that. And so there was a, you know, a strong family history of addiction. And I, I come from three sisters and one of them is also um, an alcoholic and she's sober now almost four and a half years. Um, so it was just really, it's been a beautiful experience to be sober, but I will, I will say this, you know, you mentioned your mother had passed and, and so backing up, you know, just about, oh, from 2012, my mother died unexpectedly. And I received a call and it was in, you know, it was in the middle of of winter in Wisconsin and I had to drive there and it was a snowstorm. And I just kept thinking, she's not going to die. She's not going to die. And as soon as I got there, you know, she was gone within about six hours. So she, she was hospitalized and died within 12 hours. And it was related to COPD, which is is related to heavy smoking. But you know, there was definitely evidence of of you know 
liver cirrhosis and other things going on in her body that would have eventually killed her. And she was 64 years old. So to me, that's, you know, definitely very young. Um, so just trying to, you know, think of the, some of the things you were just saying and, and sharing with that. But like I said, the, the idea of shame came to me when I was in my early 20s. And so forwarding to when I got out of treatment, James, it was again, this idea that, that I growing up, intellectualized my mother's disease, intellectualized the family system around, you know, that where there was alcoholism, despite the fact that I will say that I had, I had a fun, I I mean, there was a, there was definitely trauma in my life um, that I still work through, but overall I felt loved and I felt like there was fun in our family growing up. And so I'm grateful for that balance, but I always felt less than and I never felt worthy of, of somebody's love, somebody's attention, and always wondered if my physical symptoms were a relationship to being somatic and needy and wanting things. Although to be called somatic is, is really like a blow to, to the ego when you, when you really believe that your physical symptoms are real. And so I've always wondered about these things. And then I get to being, you know, in treatment and I, and I'm sober you know, just obviously for a few days, a week, whatever it is. And mm. my husband, my husband confronts me on some behaviors that I'd lied about. And I, this is where I kind of had that existential experience where I was laying in bed and I, and I said, I said to God, I said, I, I believe you're real. I know that you're important. You've, you know, you've been a, you've been a significant part of my life over the years as far as, you know, jumping in here and there, <coughs> excuse me. Um, but I, I, you know, like if you're really, really here for me, I need you to show me a sign. And I went to bed, not caring truthfully, James, if I lived or died, that was the mm-hmm. point that I was at. I think it's safe to say that I was suicidal in my thinking and I've never in my life been that way ever, ever, ever. And I was so dark in that moment, so much shame about who I've become, what my, what my actions have become towards my children, towards my peer group, people that knew me and didn't know what was going on with me. And I just said to God, I said, you know, I believe you're real, but if you provide miracles, I'm begging you for a miracle. I'm begging you to help me understand when I wake up in the morning, if I meant to die or live, I'm begging you to tell me how I can get out of this, how I can stay sober. And, and I want you to help me understand why I shouldn't try to come up with an active plan to kill myself. And that is the lowest I've ever been. Like my substance abuse was not the rock bottom. It was that moment right there, James. Mm. Just so, so dark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I know that experience myself. Um, I had a moment of rock bottom myself, um, which was exactly which was you know kind of it wasn't it wasn't the moment that I stopped doing the bad stuff or I, I got rid. Of, it wasn't the moment I got rid of religious certainty. It was almost two years later um, when and I said again I said this before, but. Um, I was unemployed. I'd been unemployed for a year. I'd had 
multiple job interviews go where I come second. Uh, and, you know, I had a unsuccessful, um, you know, launch of a book um, earlier in the year and things hadn't worked out as I wanted to. Uh, and, and I basically didn't have any money left like, and I had to pay a mortgage. And so I was going to have to sell my house and for a low price and move into my, my dad's flat and live on, sleep on a sofa and stuff if I didn't get a job. And, and, and I was just so depressed. Um, I'm so full of shame that I, you know, I sank to the floor. I, I, I just gave up almost. Um, and yeah, I didn't make plans to end my life, but I thought about, I thought seriously about how I would do it mm-hmm. if I was going to do it. And, um, yeah, and that was, yeah, that's the rock bottom moment. It's not, we always think the rock bottom moment is the moment where you decide to give up. The, the rock bottom moment is often when you go onto the journey of growth and actually you have to let, like, let go of a whole load of things and then you get to rock bottom and then you're able to, then you're free of those things and you can start to grow. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I will, I will say that, um, it, oh, I love how you said that though, about it's not always the rock bottom being, you know, when you're giving it up, it's, it's, sometimes when you've given that up and then it's like, oh my gosh, now I have to decide if I want to grow or if I want to stay. And what was really kind of a, so I wake up the next morning, by the way, and I am certain without a doubt, without a doubt, and I'm sure people will think this is hoaxy, but I know my truth. I am certain without a doubt that my mother was present with me throughout that night because I could smell her like musky perfume slash cigarette smoke. and. I could feel like this, this weight on the bed that I was, you know, in, and it was so comforting and so soothing. And I woke up the next morning and let me just say too, when I was making this bargain with God, I said, if you, it wasn't like, if you keep me sober, that was not it because I understand the relationship with faith. I understand the relationship with a higher power. It's not like, Hey, give me this and, uh, you know, and, and, and or take all this away. It's like, we have free will, we have choice. And so it wasn't like, make me sober and I'll follow you forever. It was help me to understand why I deserve to be sober. Help me to understand why I deserve to stay with my husband and and my children want to be with me. Help me to understand how I want to show myself love and compassion. And I not only will walk with you the rest of my days, and faith, you know, because the other thing is that I have people in my life that are um, clients that I see that are Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, whatever. So I am open to every single denomination and spiritual realm out there. It is not ethical for me to be like, because you follow this, I won't see you. It's not what I choose to do. I think the concept of faith and spirituality in and of itself is beautiful. So how do you immerse yourself within your own you know, denomination or organized religion or whatever it is you adhere to, that is what's important to me. So I woke up the next morning and, and I, and I had this overwhelming sense of peace. And I just kept hearing this word grace unknown in my head. And I kept hearing this thing about like, do all these things, Shelly, that you know, you're supposed to do for yourself and then give back. And so 
just like I reached out to you, I've never been asked to be on a podcast. I just reach out to people and it's, it's deeply uncomfortable for me <laughs> to, to public speak, which is so funny because that's not who I was six to 10 years ago, but I'm just trying to give back. I'm trying to use the voice that I believe that I was supposed to use to help people to feel a sense of love and work through grief and work through shame. So that's, that's why I do this. And I just feel very compelled that I've been given this not so much second chance because I, I'm part of this. It's just this idea that I've been given a new way to look at how we can show up for ourselves and what that love can look like. So, um, the next morning and talk about kind of another divine intervention. I worked at a prison and one of the inmates that came to the prison about three weeks after I left, he was at the treatment center. So he had heard of me and, and he had fallen on hard times after a long time of being um, clean and sober and, and free of crime. And so he was at the treatment center and we had gotten, we'd gotten to know each other pretty well. He reminded me of, um, my mom's uncle who also had, you know, trouble with alcohol. And I went to him the next morning and I just said, you know, I'm not sure what to do. And he said, Shelly, take this opportunity to, to take this as a gift and, and trust what you're, what you're feeling. Don't, you can't kill yourself. You've got people that want this from you. You're just an inspiration, you know, do what you need to do. And, and that was really just kind of, you know, special and so I started making amends with a lot of people. And of course, nobody at the time believes you, James. Everybody thinks you're going to relapse and nobody thinks you're going to get your life together. And, and you know, you're a train wreck. You've been a train wreck. Even though my my train ride of being a wreck was four short years, you know, and there was nothing before that. And I've got no, you know you know, legal charges or anything for anything I've ever done. You know, drinking and driving could be really, you know, problematic to many of us. But and I feel very blessed. I feel very blessed. I never have have taken that lightly. Um, but I felt like I don't need to to get back on and off the train to try to make a point to myself. I felt very strongly that the work I had to do post getting out of treatment was really focused on the shame and and try to find ways to feel more to have more courage and again to to give back and to work mm. through. The emotions more so. And I mentioned this just a little bit ago when we talked about, you know, when you made the comment as well about, the, you know, when, when we hit that rock bottom and when we have this kind of aha moment, yeah. it's very similar in the addiction world and that we do a lot on acute withdrawal stuff. We don't talk a lot about post-acute withdrawal. And so that's my mission when I work with people in recovery as I never ask them, have you stayed sober? What are you doing? So on, so on and so forth. I want to know what is your relationship to your substance? And then the other thing that I often ask them is, is what is your, as you're getting three to six months out from being sober or, um, you know, not having overeaten or undereaten or, or not having watched pornography or whatever obsessive compulsive type of, of behavior I'm, I'm counseling. I'll say to them, and again, in addition to what is your relationship and let's sort that out because in there you can sort out where the shame comes from. But, but how, how are you maintaining this sobriety? Because emotionally and mentally, 
the changes that go on in the brain chemistry while we're trying to normalize, you know, to get back to a sense of what our brain considers, you know, it's normal. That's there's a lot of stuff going on with your neurotransmitters that it is difficult for people to want to to stay on this this journey of of something that we would consider hopeful because think about just for the sake of saying alcohol alcohol is a depressant so whatever your serotonin levels were doing prior to your your substance abuse or the progression of your substance abuse you now have impacted your serotonin levels and other neuro, neurotransmitter levels because of the amount of alcohol being put in and what it's doing and then you take that away and you take it away and you're not supplementing that with possibly like an, an antidepressant SSRI or some sort of naturopathic thing or exercise to offset the fact that your brain kind of feels like it's crashing. Th- that is where people say, I, I, I can't make sense of my moods. I, I, I don't know, Shelly, I'm just all over the place and I want to cry and I want to do this. And I'll say, because people don't often talk about the post-acute withdrawal. And so that's where I think when you and I talk, when you, when you said it wasn't so much right away, it was a couple years later, or for me, it was, I was already, you know, sober, quote unquote, because I was in a treatment center. It was mm. after that moment of, wait a minute, if I don't do something, it just is really uncomfortable to keep going like this, because it, it there is so much mood dysregulation. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. There is always that moment. Yeah. And actually, it's a moment of, I mean, in my experience, of liberation because finally you realize oh all these securities that i had put up to protect me from dealing with my pain or my grief or my trauma were just empty lies they they, they weren't real you know having a mortgage and having a job and uh and and you know success career success whatever you know all these things that i'd held up as the answer weren't the answer they didn't deliver they didn't solve anything and actually when all they were all gone all i was left with with was the grief and and the the pain and i had to start dealing with it and so you're in that way you're you're liberated from the control of your grief and you actually start to name it and work on it and that's when you get free and you get and you get healing and transformation Absolutely. You know, and I think to even, you know, for your listeners that um, the stages of grief were developed by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She's an American Swiss psychiatrist um, who's, you know, who has passed away now. I want to say 2004, but don't quote me on that. That might have not been, might have been 2012. I know it was in the 2000s, but anyhow, she was somebody I studied in school. And she has the book, I believe it's on death and dying. And, and it was more, her work was more around the stages of dying, not so much grief and people turned it into the stages of grief. And years later, she started working with a man named David Kessler. Um, he, he really valued her work and, and reached out and just kind of asked if he could, I don't know, like if it was, you know, shadow her, study her, work with her, talk with her. And they ended up developing this, this strong work relationship and friendship. And, and he really shared her work a lot, even, you know, and still does after she has passed. His website is grief.com. And again, like I said, his name is David Kessler. And 
when his son died unexpectedly of an overdose, um, I want to say maybe three years ago, two, three years ago, he was obviously catapulted into this place of, of grief that, that he'd been, you know, teaching and sharing all these years. And as you and I both know, we can go through, we can understand as much as we want, but it doesn't resonate with us until we're in that moment. And so now he's in this moment and it was from there that he realized that he that there was there was more beyond what would be considered kind of the fifth stage. So stage one is is typically denial. Then there's anger. Then there's bargaining. Then there's depression. And then there's acceptance. And yeah. in his mind, it was like, but acceptance isn't enough to just then say, okay, now that I'm in acceptance, I'm just supposed to move on. And so he came up with what they call the sixth stage of grief, which is finding meaning. And he's written a book on it called Finding Meaning and reached out to, if I'm remembering the story correctly, reached out to Elizabeth's, you know, children and asked if that could be included. And, and they, you know, the foundation agreed on that. And so I thought that was really powerful because for you and I and anybody listening, like, so you, you, you go through what I went through. I was very blessed in the sense that the damage wasn't so far gone that my husband left me or my children didn't want to have anything to do with me. My husband stayed and, and, and then it got to be talk about it, you know, kind of a, a turn of event. Like he was so codependent and, and passive aggressive and kind of sabotaging things because he was, he didn't trust me that then it was like, I don't know if I want to stay because, you know, now we're, we're not healthy. It took about three years for that to kind of clear the air. The kids would come to counseling with me a lot and that we worked through that. Um, but there's a lot of your listeners out here that everything went away for them. People left them. People don't want to have anything to do with them. So to accept that they are, sober or clean or not, you know, disordered eating or, or maintaining that or whatever, like sometimes that's not enough. And so I love that David was able to add that there's finding meaning because really when we can find meaning in what it is that we are, are showing up for in life, I just, again, it's tying in that piece of spirituality, that intersection between what's a really dark place and what can be a bright, a bright future. So mm. I just... Yeah. I just wanted your listeners to know about him. Um, and, and I just, I, I just think he's doing some really great work, but you know, so there, there was, um, that piece. Let me, let me add to that, what your listeners, you know, don't know about me because probably nobody that is listening knows anything about me, but it, so I, I get, you know, I get sober, I, I get clean. I'm, I quit. I was a closet smoker. I loved my Marlboro menthols. Um, and you know, nobody, really knew that that was happening either. And, and then I start to have these physical symptoms, which brings me back to earlier in the conversation about having physical symptoms when I was younger. And I start to develop this vision problem in my eye and eventually lose that vision in my right eye very briefly and have very significant pain. And I go into the doctor and they tell me that I have optic neuritis and said that I should go and get an MRI done because of the fact that it's very likely, you know, MS. And here's the difference between American, you know, healthcare compared to other countries is I literally got the MRI the same day. Um, we have good health insurance through my husband's work and 
the hospital next door to this eye clinic happened to have an opening. And so unlike other, well, I don't even know if it's American, it could just be other, other, you know, states as well and, and, and healthcare providers and what's available that in some cases, people that I follow in other countries that have chronic health issues, they've had to wait anywhere from three to six months to get a CT scan or PET scan or an MRI, things that would really help them know what's definitively going on. So I was really blessed to be able to do that the same day. And it came back that there were some spots on my brain but nothing, you know, nothing significant. And about two months later is when I was able to get into a neurologist and he did not think that it was multiple sclerosis. And then 11 months later, I had, um, I had another bout, but in that time, James, when I shared with family and friends, what was going on, they were very, very skeptical that I was ill and they were more in the, the thought process that I was finding a way to drug seek. And I had a sister say as much to me, and it was devastating to hear that, to not be believed and to not know if I'm going to gain full vision back. I also struggled with having floaters in my eyes and and just the pain that was there. 11 months later, it happened again and so on and so forth. So basically in, in three years from 2015 to 2018, I had five bouts of, of optic neuritis and at this point, I had terrible vertigo on and off. I was tired a lot. I, I really, I couldn't stay upright. Heat bothered me. I didn't know what all that meant. Um, and then I think it was the, fi- the fifth bout in 2018, I, I said something to my um, ophthalmologist and he said, I will treat you because the treatment for it is usually intravenous steroids. And so you go in and you get pumped and then you, you, come back 24 hours later and you do this for three to five days until the inflammation in your body goes down and steroids are, are pretty heavy and it's a thousand milligrams. So it's, it's, you know, that's once a day. So it's pretty extensive. And so he said, I need you to find a new neurologist. And so I did like that same day and he sent my records to her and her office actually got back to me the same day. And they said, can you come in tomorrow? So in March of 2018, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, relapse remitting multiple sclerosis. And I had an MRI a few days after that, and it showed more lesions. I have about eight lesions max. It's not like I have a significant amount. The problem is, is that the years that I was untreated, it was, they, they, they've sat on, on, you know, nerve endings and areas where sensory things, you know, shouldn't be disrupted. And so, so, and I'll say, you know, just kind of a little bit more about that in a minute, but it was this idea that you feel validated, right? When you feel validated and you feel believed that, oh my goodness, the anxiety, the feelings of, you know, depression for some people the you know, your truth just shows up a little bit differently. And so Mm -hmm. that was, that was huge. And then and then I started a medication, um, and that it was it was a disease, you know, um, modifying d- disease modifying drug. I think is what they say to them, um, and and that that's been helpful. So the good news is, since 2018, James, I have no new lesions, and I can I can truly say the things that have improved are I don't have the same level of brain fog, I don't have the same level of fatigue, and I'm not as I don't have the same level of like vertigo. But the things that have not improved over time and have gotten worse 
are sensory things. So like from my chin to my, my stomach area, and so my torso and all through my arms, I feel like I have shingles, like a low grade shingles. And like, I'm kind of being electrocuted. And if I hold a hot cup of coffee, it's really hot. Um, you know, it, it's amplified. So sensory wise, yeah. those things yeah. has been, have been troubling. But so, it, it, you know, I had to actually switch medical providers because again, she didn't think that I should be feeling these things. So I'm now at UW Madison and I'm getting some really amazing care there. And it, and again, it goes back to this idea that I said to them, this is my body. I've come a really, really long way. I am still clean and sober, not keeping in mind that all along the journey, people are like, the pain that you're experiencing, we should medicate. And I'm like, nope, we're not medicating it. That goes against what I want to do for my recovery. And so I've maintained that despite people, despite me maybe being able to come up with excuses. And all I've wanted all along is for somebody to say, it's okay that you're feeling like this feel upset, feel sad, fear, feel scared. We're going to help with the symptoms and we're going to make it so that you can show up and keep doing the work you love to do, which is being a therapist and, and helping other people out. And that just started for me, honestly, in, in April of this last year, switching to, to Madison. It was through getting my records. My, um, I requested my records just so I could kind of investigate James, it was through there that we discovered I have a benign brain tumor called an acoustic neuroma that wow. um, nobody told me about, but it was small enough. So because my neurologist kind of was like, well, it wasn't doing anything. And the team in Madison's like, yeah, it's not growing significantly, but it's tripled in size. And even though we wouldn't take it out now, it's still not for anybody else to decide if we should do anything about it, other than the professionals who literally just address these acoustic neuromas. And so again, just for your listeners, if there's anything I want them to understand in today's conversation, it's this idea that that we will have some really, really difficult things come into our lives, whether it's the loss of a parent, it is, um, you know, addiction, uh, of some sort of, and when I always say addiction, I say to people, that's just the umbrella term for obsessive compulsive behaviors. It doesn't always attribute to substance abuse, which I think some people do think that that's all it is. We'll have mm. physical health issues that will, will be literally maybe, I don't know, an ulcer due to, to too much stress. And we're not addressing that. It could be a brain tumor. It could be, it could be cancer. It could be lupus. It could be rheumatoid arthritis. It could be, you know, you name it, whatever is going on in our bodies that we just know that this is not what our body used to be like. And all of these things to have somebody say, I hear you. Tell me more about it. Help me to understand how can I make you feel comfortable? What would that journey look like for you? And what do you need from me to make this be more comforting for you? Just to hear all those little things is what I think makes most of us just, just kind of breathe, right? And just feel hmm. heard and feel, it just feels validating, doesn't it? Yeah, I think we all need to know we're not alone. I think it at the end of the day, we need to know that we're not you know, going through this on our own. I mean, 2020 has been oh. <laughs> you know, 
such an awful you know year for so many people there's so much grief so much loss so much trauma that everyone has been going through collectively in many ways and you know um when you're going through that uh that kind of any kind of trauma uh, and you're struggling or whether you've got mental health issues or whatever you're going through you need to know you're not alone solidarity is so powerful and to have somebody who just like you say comes up to you and just said it's okay to be as you are i'm meeting you where you are you're not alone in this i'm with you um it means it means everything Mm-hmm. yes yes yeah. and you you and i talked a little bit about that about what 2020 has been like the thing that i want people to understand as well is that if you look at the brain there are certain sections in the brain and in the the base of our brain in the back is this part of our brain called the amygdala and that's the the reptilian part of the brain, the part of the brain that is like, you know, stranger danger, you know, fight or flight, like we need to be aware and, and on guard because something, you know, we have to be willing to protect ourselves. That part of the brain is is triggered and ignited when when we're under stress. And it's okay to be under stress. Like we are all under stress. And I want your folks to know that as well, your listeners to understand that that we will all have stress. But when we have an external stressor like a pandemic, the the that part of the brain is not able to keep up. So the stress re- response that we're all feeling, I mean, it's like just picture that part, just you know, somebody like shooting arrows at it constantly, and you're just you know trying to dodge around it. That's what 2020 feels like for people um, in regards to to the pandemic, and and partly because. I mean, first of all, the the virus itself is scary in and of itself. It's the idea, though, that when you turn on the TV or you turn on the radio or you listen to a podcast or whatever it is, everything is so, in a way, contradictory. And and there's and, and there's that the world is so toxic. The world is so fear based, and so you have all that energy at a very dark and heightened, you know place just like hovering like a like a like a depressive cloud over the world right mm. and if you're somebody who if you're somebody who already struggles from depression or anxiety or your brain itself is is not necessarily as regulated as somebody else's and 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 you maybe you take antidepressants or anti-anxieties or what have you you know if you're somebody that you know that there are are kind of some chemical imbalances. The pandemic has has just magnified this for people. Their thoughts are intrusive. Their thoughts are are spiraling. Their thoughts are are very depressive and, and contradictory. And so, whenever somebody comes on for me, just so your listeners know, my entire I own my own private practice, and it's oh sorry about that. I thought I turned that off. My entire practice is is all online. And so prior to COVID, I was already seeing people all online. Um, and and so when people were showing up, you know, when you talk about being able to feel somebody's emotions, it doesn't matter if it's on a computer or or if it's um, on a telephone or if it's in person. Oh, my goodness, James, the weight of people and their emotions coming through, you know, the, the video through the Zoom yeah, yeah, would absolutely. just so toxic 
Have you ever experienced that when you've been talking with someone? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I've, I, I do therapy online. I've done coaching. Uh, I mean, I'm, I mean, I don't, I'm not a therapist. I've had therapy online um, and I've had coaching online uh, and spiritual direction online. And all of those have been very emotional experiences, you know, um, and, you know, it comes through. Yeah. Um, especially being highly sensitive, you know, you pick up things, um, right. you know, um, very much more easily. Uh, and so, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I resonate with that. Yeah. Um, this has been really, really great to, to talk to you and to hear your story. Um, it's, it's really encouraging. It's, it's really inspiring uh, in many ways. Um, I'm sure there'll be people who resonate with it as well, which is, which is great. Um, yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you, Shelley. Well, I really appreciate it. And I will just say one last thing to your listeners. And you just, you just mentioned that, especially if you're highly sensitive, I think folks need to find a way to put a shield on themselves and however that looks. And one of the areas that I try to to direct people into, as I say, get online and research and understand the dimensions of wellness. And there's many of them. There's, there's mental, emotional, physical, spiritual, economic, financial, you know, there's, there's more. Look them up, write them down, write down all the parts of each one see where you are aligned with that dimension, where you feel like you're not connected to it. And from there, people can then start seeing where they're not, where they're not doing so well in life. And maybe that helps them then know if they do go to a therapist, if they go to a coach, if they, you know, realize they need to be more, you know, uh, connected with their, their, their higher power, faith, their spirituality, they're able to then definitively see that piece. Otherwise we come to think we we get overwhelmed, right? James, we're like, I don't know. I'm just a basket case. I don't know where to start. And I'm like, I got an idea, break it down. Look at these areas of wellness that we all are living in. See where you could be, where you're giving too much of yourself really. And you need to shift and, and reallocate to somewhere else and, or delegate to somebody outside of you. So that would be really some strong advice. And I will say this as well. I feel very strongly that everybody in life should have some sense of of connection to spirituality. And spirituality is not just, again, religion. It's looking at our values and our belief system and just trusting that some days we're not understanding it, but somebody stronger and greater than ourselves can really help us figure that out. We just have to communicate with that person. And sometimes it's sitting at the gravesite of a loved one. You know, it's it's whatever goes. So thank you for letting me be on here. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. It really has. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure we'll have you back sometime because I'm sure there's more we could talk about. So um, thank you. And where can people where can people connect with you online? They can go to my website and it's www.shellyramseydeyoung.com. So if that's something that you just want to um, you know type in when you when you post this again, it's www dot shelly ramsey deyoung.com and from there they can read about me and the work i do and they can connect to me through there great thanks um i highly recommend that as well everybody um it's really great what uh what she does she's got a lot to um lot to share so um yeah and uh thanks shelly for for coming on and and thanks for listening everybody <laughs>